Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. I know that last time I was kind of working through 1 Peter, but um, 1 Peter is pretty heavy, weighty, <laughs> and uh, I didn't think I'd be able to get through it very quickly, especially coming up here only maybe once a month. So um, I'm kind of basically slated to do teaching for the next six months, about once a month. So I thought it would be nice to do Jonah, where I think I could complete teaching through it in six weeks. So, um, And it's just a wonderful book. So I'm excited about it. I think it's Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, if you're trying to find it. So, today's going to be only two verses because we're going to give more of an introduction and overview of the book of Jonah. And at the onset here we see in verse 2 an introduction to the three main characters of the book of Jonah. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these two short verses, and yet we know that, Lord, there's a profundity and depth, Lord, in your word, God, that is unsearchable to our human minds, God. We ask for your help in learning and understanding and growing. And we ask this through the power of your spirit and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the, the question I'm asking today is, who is the book of Jonah about? And first of all, it's about Jonah. This is a story about Jonah, a man who experienced the miracle of God in such a profound and marvelous way that is extraordinary and unique. Now there's actually evidence, I I was doing a little search, has anybody ever been swallowed and lived through being swallowed by a whale? Um, And you'll get all kinds of fancy stories about it, but there is evidence that in the last century here at some point somebody in Cape Cod was swallowed by a sperm whale and actually spit out after about 30 seconds (laughs) some of the details aren't totally clear but he was lobster diving and and spat out but Jonah is really pretty unique he actually lived in a fish for three days that's quite different than somebody being spit up after 30 seconds right so consequently, um, people have a hard time believing Jonah, right? They actually relegate this to myth or legend, some sort of urban legend of source, but not a real man and real history. So I want to, at the onset, give you four reasons to believe that Jonah is a real man. First point is found in verse 1. It's stated that he is the son of Amittai. 
Okay, this is a, a real chronology, a, a family tree, if you will, a, a historical account of his lineage. And if I told you about the story of a man who was the son of Christopher Columbus, would you think that I was speaking in terms of fiction or fact? Fact, right? This, this puts it into the genre of real history when you, when you link him to real historical figures. Second, uh, Jonah spent some time in a real city. And you can, uh, archaeologists have dug up the ruins of this ancient city called Nineveh. An incredible city, a real city, and um, if if Jonah was, if we were to understand Jonah as as fiction or legend or something, that wouldn't he be some sort of made up, fictitious name like the lost city of Atlantis or Narnia or something like that? And when 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 you have real places and real people, real events, then you're linking yourself to actual history. So we have. Jonah himself was a real man in the real lineage of Amittai, and he went to a real city, Nineveh. Third, Jonah is mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. So let's turn there real quickly. 2 Kings, chapter 14. Jonah is mentioned in this historical account. This is um, Israel's history here. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and 1 years. So Jonah lived in the time of this king, Jeroboam II. And uh, he reigned in the years of 793 to 753 B.C. Verse 24, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. Jonah lived in this time of great defection and apostasy in the northern kingdom. At this point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are split. The... uh, the uh, northern kingdom followed after the ways of Jeroboam I, who instituted false religion, setting up the gold calf in place of the worship at Solomon's temple in the south. And here's Jonah living in this time of great defection in Israel. Verse 25, he restored the coasts of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. All right, again, Jonah is linked here to a a known city, Gath-hefer, which is about two miles northeast of Hamath. 
of uh, Bethlehem and about 725 miles um, southwest of Nineveh. Pretty far away, actually, from Nineveh, about the distance of Laytonville up to Seattle. That's how far away he lived from this place called Nineveh. And it's mentioned here that Jonah was not only a prophet to the people of Nineveh, but he was a, a prophet to the northern kingdom. And he, he said that King Jeroboam was going to take captive the land of Syria from um, the, the land of the sea to the, to the river. And so in this time, Jeroboam II was a, was a mighty conquering king and actually took back some of the land of Israel. So Jonah here is linked to some real historical events. Okay? And we see that he's the son of Amittai. He's mentioned here in 2 Kings. And he's spent time in these real known historical locations. Now, unless you want to make the book of 2 Kings into a parable or myth, and we have to conclude that Jonah himself here was a real historical person. So, fourth point though, miracles are really not a problem for Christians, are they? I mean, the only reason you would reject Jonah as, as a historical real event is because you reject miracles. But as Christians, we believe in the power of God to do things like this, right? We actually believe that God made the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. We believe that God creates human life, and we believe that God actually raised the dead. And if you are a Christian this morning, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Unless you actually believe in the miracle of resurrection, you are not a Christian. And so, we don't have a problem with miracles. We, we believe in miracles. But how does somebody survive the churning of a whale's stomach in stomach acid? Uh, how does he survive without oxygen for three days? I, I don't know. I just believe that God can do these kind of things. That's the simple and plain answer. All right. And so, as Christians, we don't need to explain this away. We just accept it as historical fact. It's presented to us in the Word of God as, as history. Jonah was a real man. And yet, he was a fallible man. As we go through the book of Jonah, you're going to see all the blunders and blemishes of a real fallible man. And Jonah is painted in a bad image in the book of Jonah. He doesn't really seem like a, a very likable guy. Self-righteous, smug, um, self-absorbed. He's defiant of God. God tells him to go one direction and he goes the opposite. He seems to hate people, particularly the Ninevites. And yet, it's interesting to me that this is actually an autobiography of Jonah. He's, he's writing this in the third person, and he's, he's reflecting on himself. Which actually leads me to, the, to my third point about Jonah. He, he was a real man, he was a fallible man, but this man was a Christian. A true, true genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he's authentic. This is more like his personal testimony about his failures, and he's not trying to minimize them or gloss over them, but he admits them freely, confessing them. But he's, he's giving us all the ugly details, debasing himself that he might exalt God in his mercy and his grace. And so that I would commend to you that Jonah himself is a Christian man. He doesn't present himself as a victim. And though he goes through many trials, he never, um, as he reflects back on it, he's not, he's not presenting himself as a victim. Right? Uh, but it's more of his self-reflection about his own bad attitude and God's abundant mercy. So Jonah, he doesn't put makeup on a pig. He, he notes all the blemishes and he features God and he fre- features God's grace particularly. So, you could outline this book several different ways. And one possible way is to say this, Jonah's miserable mission, his dreadful calling, his pathetic response, his desperate prayer, his reluctant service, and his cringeworthy attitude. We won't choose that as our outline for the book of Jonah, but, but from his perspective, this seems to be how he identifies himself. The second main character in the book of Jonah, let's flip back to Jonah chapter 1 here, is Ninevites. And this is a story about the least likable people on earth. And therefore the least likely converts. This is a story about a great city, it says. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come upon, has come up before me. This was a great city. It mentions here in chapter 1, verse 2. Again, in chapter 3, verse 2, it's said to be a great city. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, again, it said it's an exceedingly great city, which makes the point this was a a great, great city, right? This is a, a metropolis of the ancient world at the height of its glory. And archaeological ruins show that the city walls were, were a fortress. This the city was a magnificent, great city of antiquity, 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. That was the city fortress walls. And it was two miles in diameter. And apparently you could race three chariots side by side each other along the city walls. Which would have been quite a spectacle to see, right? I mean, uh, talk about an awesome sporting event. Wouldn't you like to be looking up and seeing chariots run along your city walls? Magnificent. This was a great city. It was the capital city of Assyria who actually ruled the known world in this time. They ruled the Middle East. And Jonah's mission was to cry out to these people, to to reach the people of Nineveh. All of Nineveh, no one excluded. Even the terrorists who wanted to strap a bomb to themselves and blow them up. That's that's the kind of city that he he went into to reach out to. Um, in verse 3, 3, it says that Jonah, it took him three days 
to complete his preaching tour through this great city. Now the walls of this city in diameter extend about two miles in diameter. And it's it's estimated that within these walls could only fit about 200,000 people, a conservative estimate. But in chapter 4, verse 11, it's noted that there's actually 120,000 toddlers and infants. So what is this? this is, uh, is this a contradiction in the Bible? Um, no, I think there's some good explanations for this. It doesn't take Jonah... Um, three days to walk two miles from from wall to wall in the city. That's not what the Word of God is communicating it to us here. I think there's two possible explanations. First, um, Jonah's preaching tour included weaving through all the different quadrants, the town hall, um, the public spaces, the parks, whatever, in in his um, in his um, in his preaching tour. And then second, we could think of Nineveh like we do San Francisco. Now, when we reference San Francisco, we often think of the San Francisco Bay Area, which includes towns as far as 50 miles outside of San Francisco. The, The town that I live in is Santa Rosa, 50 miles away. It's considered the North Bay. Now, I I would suggest to you that that's likely what is in mind here. There was probably a a minimum of about 600,000 people that Jonah would reach in his tour um, of this greater Nineveh area. And so um, Jonah is on this preaching circuit going out throughout all of Nineveh, but outside the city walls, extending to these smaller towns as well. So, um, but it's noted here that Jonah, his message, it says, cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was a horrific place. They were a, a very wicked, wicked people. And it betrays common sense for Jonah to take on a mission like this, which is why we'll see later he actually runs in the opposite direction. You calling me to those guys? Um, Jonah wants to go to Tarshish, a small tropical island out there in the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You know, he wants to be wearing board shorts and surfing. I, I, I don't know what Tarshish is like, but he doesn't want to go that way. He wants to take a little mini vacay. He he doesn't want to go to these people that hate God and hate the Jews. He doesn't want to go to a place like Gaza to preach to Hamas or ISIS or something like this. uh, he, He doesn't want to expose himself to terrorists who hate him and put his life in danger. And God says to cry out against their wickedness. I mean, that would really put you on the spotlight, wouldn't it? Provoking the bully. Right? So, um, so what's so bad about these Ninevites? Why does God call them wicked? First, they have a, a, a wicked origin. Nineveh, the, the root of this word Nineveh is nanu, which means fish. 
kind of interesting. This is Fishtown. Located in modern city of Mosul, Iraq, along the Tigris River, um, home of the carp, the barbel, the spiny eel, and catfish, this was uh, part of the, the livelihood of this city. They were fishermen. It was founded by the infamous Nimrod, great-grandson or, or grandson of Noah. Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, you can read about that. Uh, Nimrod actually founded two great cities, here Nineveh and also Babylon. And Nimrod was known to be a mighty hunter. Now, the text indicates that he wasn't hunting animals. This guy was hunting men. He was a, a, a hunter of men, as it is in the Hebrew. He was actually a mass murderer who led the rebellion at the Tower of Babel against God. That's who Nimrod is. And he founded this city called Nineveh. And so it has this, this wicked origin. After Nimrod had, had failed his project in, in Babylon, he set up these two great cities, Nineveh and Babylon, as a monument to himself. So that's the origin of Nineveh. Second, they had this wicked religion. Um, they made the creation their creator and worshipped and bowed down to a fish. The, the fish town worshipped the fish god. Uh, there were thousands of god in, gods in Nineveh, but chief among them all was the god Dagon, the fish god. And so Jonah is a fishy story about a prophecy that came out of the mouth of a big fish fish worshippers condemning their fish god worship. Did you get that? <laughs> I find that kind of fishy. <laughs> and so there was a wicked origin, a wicked religion. But furthermore, these people were tyrants. Assyrians were tyrants of the worst kind, worse than the IRS. They not only imposed a heavy tax upon their own people, but they actually imposed taxes upon foreign nations that offered no, no return. There was no service that they offered in, in, in reply. So can you imagine if, if Russia conquered America and we had to pay a 50% tax to them and there was no Caltrans or any kind of public service they offered in return? So the, that's, that's who these... That's who these people were. They conquered nations and they levied a tax against them. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17.3. And talk about taxation without representation, right? My kids complain about it. Why do I have to pay sales tax when I don't get the vote? Well, these, the <laughs> well they didn't get the, the vote on who was in charge here. The, these were wicked tyrants. According to Nahum 2.9, a hundred years after the book of Jonah, they had um, built up such a federal reserve through overtaxation of people that God actually condemned them for it. Nineveh falls a hundred years later. 
and then fourth, they were they were just wicked, wicked, horrible monsters of people, torturing captives in the most grotesque and disgusting ways possible, inhumane. Um, I'll spare you some details, but just to give some indication about these guys, uh, I'll probably list out a few different things. Um, but they they conquered and occupied cities, and it's kind of a mystery how they actually accomplished this because Assyria was a pretty small nation. They were they're a very small nation and didn't ha- seem to have the military. Uh, force to actually occupy a city. So if you were to go and and conquer a city, that's one thing. You might have military might strong enough to conquer a city, but then to occupy a city, you have to have a lot more resources in case um, other you know leaders were able to rally a militia and fight against their captives, right? And so to occupy a city actually takes quite a bit of military strength and force. And so it's kind of a wonder how they achieve this. Well, there seems to be a twofold strategy. First, they would scatter the national leaders. When they conquered a town, they would take captive the leaders first, and then they would ship them off and deport them to other cities. Um, As a consequence, there was no patriotism. There was no strong leadership, no way to organize and and strategize against your captors. And so without any any, um, leadership, they would never be able to organize and conspire. Second, they created terror. So like Hamas, they, they would shame people, brutalize and torture them, and create fear of opposition so it was sheer intimidation which kept people under their captivity. Uh, the thought of what they might do to your, to your, your wife or your children, it, it just kept people compliant to them. You can read about the Assyrians as they came to the city walls of Jerusalem in 2 Kings chapter 18, 27. Rabshika, the head of the Assyrian army threatens Israel that if they won't comply with him, he's basically going to starve them out. He's going to dehydrate them. Um, and he says he's going to make them eat their own dung and drink their own urine. So that, that these are the kind of people we're talking about. They, they have uh, um, no human ethic. And these... The Syrians were obsessed with waging wars and invading nations all around them. Um, their tactics included cutting out the tongues of prisoners, skinning people alive, splitting open torsos. Um, I won't say what they did to women. They'd actually uh, would take the skulls of people that were slain and have their loved ones parade them around the city as part of their worship to their pagan gods. They burn children alive, and then they'd stack the skulls uh, of those as a pyramid outside the city gate as a warning to those who entered in. So, this was ancient ISIS. These were the ancient, the, the terrorists of the ancient world. And so, this this is a a story about these wicked Ninevites. 
And if we were going to outline it from their perspective, we'd say this, salvation to the worst people on earth. Their terrifying reputation, their contrite response, and this tremendous revival. We're going to see God's redeeming grace in an extraordinary way in the life of these Ninevites. Third person that this is about is the Lord himself. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it says in verse 1. So the Lord is constantly referred to in the book of Jonah and we learn about God through his works in the book of Jonah. First we learn about his sovereignty. Jonah planned to go to Tarshish but God planned for him to go to Nineveh and what happens when our plans conflict with God's plans? Well, the Lord is sovereign. He always succeeds. Second, his omnipotence. We'll see that he, he hurls hurricanes as if they're, he's, a, he's a pitcher lobbing a, a softball. I mean, uh, his omnipotence and power is displayed in the book of Jonah. His omnipresence. Where can you go to, to flee from God? Can you go down to Tarshish? Can you go down into the, the bowels of a boat? Can you go down into the belly of a great fish? God is present everywhere in the book of Jonah. His patience. You're going to see that Jonah acts like a two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum in chapter 4, and yet God patiently reasons with Jonah and brings him back to his senses. We see God's impartiality. Um, God doesn't have favorites, but he wants to save all kinds of people, every class, creed, you name it. God saves these Ninevites. We see his impartiality. We see his compassion. In fact, all of Jonah chapter 4 is basically an illustration to Jonah about his compassion for the lost. We're going to see his desire for world missions. And this is foreshadowing of a time when God would dispatch the church on global missions to reach all of the nations. And then finally, we're going to see God's super abundant grace. Um, Jonah says this with a horrible attitude. He actually concludes the right things about God. Turn to chapter 4. lost the sword drill game. Sorry about that. <clears throat> now Jonah says this with the worst, the most pathetic attitude. But he says, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in, the, in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I n- know that you are a gracious God. He's condemning God for being gracious. You're a gracious God and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. 
one who relents from doing harm. <laughs> you see the ir- irrationality of, of Jonah here? It's pretty fascinating. But he gets the conclusion right. This is, this is what God did in Nineveh. He was taking the worst of all kinds of people, and by it, he was, he was showing the world his immeasurable, the immeasurable limits of his grace, that it extends even to the worst of us. And so this, from God's perspective, if we were to outline it, we'd say this, God's grace, his covenant grace, oh, sorry, his covenant grace indicated by uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where he, he's called the Lord, which is available to all. Second, uh, his sustaining grace to his rebellious children, even those who are in open defiance to him. We see that in the life of Jonah and his sovereign grace to the most undeserving and unlikely kind of people on this earth. We'll move through these last two points pretty quickly, but there's a bigger story to be told about the book of Jonah, and we're going to get to Matthew chapter 12 and as we conclude the series on it. Um, Jonah is actually a prototypical Jew, and the Ninevites are prototypical Gentiles. So Nineveh is kind of a, a preliminary model of the church age when the church would go out to the unchurched Gentiles. God had promised to bless all of the nations in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. And we see a beginning of that as God sends a prophet out to save, to preach a message that would bring salvation to the Ninevites. We see in it God's compassion for Gentiles, those who are far off, who don't, who don't attend Sunday school, who don't have Bibles, who have never known the graces of God. And God's compassion for those to reach out to the lost. So this anticipates a, a, a day, an age of, of the gospel, when the church would go out with the gospel to the entire known world. That's the day you and I live in. And Jonah is a typical Jew. He's, he's like that older brother in um, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how horrific his attitude was about God's grace to those who are undeserving? He became entitled. And, and they thought, um, the Jews at this time, they thought that God owed them something. They became prideful and self-righteous, thinking they were better than others. They became self-absorbed. And, and you see, God puts Jonah in this miserable condition. He sends this, uh, this storm Jonah's way and takes away his only shade plant as an object lesson of what it's like to live as a Gentile who doesn't know the graces of God. And so we see in this uh, a prototypical Jew and a prototypical Gentiles, we could outline the book this way, the Jews and the Gentiles, how hardened the Jews became, how soft the Gentiles are, and how God wants the Jews to share his grace with others. But to just bring this home, um, this is a story about us as well. 
Is our church like the Jews, happy to enjoy God's blessings, enjoying all the privileges of knowing God and His grace and never lifting a finger to reach out to the lost? So this is about us. Christians, we are missionaries. That's why we, uh, in, in the passage this morning I read from Matthew chapter 28, God says to go to all the world, making disciples of all nations. That's our calling. It's the Great Commission. And you might not think of yourself as a missionary in a formal sense where you have this divine calling from God telling you to go to a foreign nation like Nineveh or Gaza or wherever else. But if you are a Christian, it is our calling to share this good news with others. We have a divine calling from the Lord to share the gospel, to share His grace. And so I'd encourage you to memorize some scriptures, know some things you want to share with other people about God's grace, have a personal testimony. And I would just challenge you, how can we sit in the shade of God's blessing each week here at the church and not want that for others? So this teaches us about our divine calling from the Lord to remember God's grace to us and to have compassion for those who do not know the Lord to reach lost souls. So I'm going to conclude um, as we go through the book of Jonah. um, We need to become more missional minded. Um, Let's put ourselves in the story. Let's reflect on our own attitudes towards the lost. May God increase our desire to reach the lost. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord God, we just uh, thank you, Lord, that because you sent this your grace out through men and women, missionaries, Lord, who came across the Atlantic Ocean, Lord, and planted churches, Lord, that we have come to know your grace, Lord, up here in Laytonville. I thank you, Lord, for global missions. I pray that you'd stir in our hearts to want to spread this love and grace to all. Lord, we thank you for um, the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we can come to know uh, you, Lord, as you've paid our, our debt, our penalty, Lord. Lord, I more and more I understand, Lord, the depths of my depravity, God, and in your abundant grace to all. We thank you, Lord, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.